Initializing now. You are listening to Intellectual Icebergs, June 24th, 2006, show number 13. Today's topics are online consensus and online community building. For comments or questions, you can email us at comments at intellectualicebergs.org, you can Skype us at IntIce, or you can IM us at int underscore ice on Yahoo, or intellectualice, all one word, on AIM. Welcome back to Intellectual Icebergs. I am again your host, journeyman Jim Vance. With me today, the ever-intellectual Rob Raplin. Hi there. Today we're talking about a topic near and dear to Rob's heart, online consensus building, something we've discussed in the past personally, and I know he wants to share with you most most profoundly. Oh yeah, I've been working on this one for about six years now, off and on, and I'm sure many of you will find a great deal of connection with this topic because... So many of us spend so much of our time online trying to convince other people that they don't have the right information, or maybe just that they're complete wackos. No, I know I do it myself, trust me. And we've been faced with numerous bad forms of argumentation habit, and so I've actually found a way of enforcing good arguing habits through online algorithmic functionality. So I thought I'd share it with you. Say that one four times fast. I'm not going to dare. Well, let's go right into it, Rob. How are we going to differentiate consensus building from other forms of social interaction? Well, the primary other form of social interaction Interaction that I've run into online is community building. Community building has characteristics that are significantly different than consensus building, and I'll give you a few examples of this. Let's start with the good old synchronous-asynchronous communication idiom. Basically, synchronous communication means you're waiting around for the other person to make a response. Face-to-face communication is a good example of that, or chat. Synchronous communication has a significant advantage to community building interaction because it gives you the opportunity to get the other person's reaction on a small piece of what you have to say before putting forth more information. This allows you to adjust it and change it to be more palatable to them. And this all happens because when you're community building, you're attempting to forge a contract for interaction. This means you're trying to figure Figure out which topics you can talk about, which topics you have in common, which topics you need to avoid, what things are interesting to the other people what ways of saying things may not actually work well for them, and whether or not you actually even want to be in on this conversation in the first place. And all of this allows a whole bunch of topic shifting. Topic shifting is absolutely necessary for good community building because you're not exactly sure what you're going to be talking about or what aspects of it you're going to be talking about. Unfortunately for consensus building, it is an utter bane people use it for all sorts of bad communication habits. You're trying to come to a consensus on a specific piece of something, but people keep bringing in other pieces and obfuscating and evading and things like that, and it makes it much more difficult. So for community building, synchronous communication and topic shifting, good. For consensus building, synchronous communication and topic shifting, not so good. Another aspect is the omnidirectional characteristic of the communication. Basically, when you're trying to debate something, it's important that everybody have an opportunity to make statements that everybody else will have access to. Cases where omnidirectional communication doesn't exist is things like web pages or television or even telephone conversations because even though the two people can interact, other people who might be trying to get in on the consensus building behavior can't hear or respond to what those people are saying. So then you try and do conference calls and then you get into a situation where you have so many people that everyone wants to talk and but not everybody can talk and they break into smaller groups which breaks up the omnidirectionalness. Now, good Good examples of this are like wikis and forums where pretty much everybody can put stuff out there that other people can see. The problem with those tends to be that so many people have so many things to say that it all winds up in a jumbled mishmash and doesn't get organized or using Usenet as an example. It becomes a needle in a haystack trying to find anything of value. A lot of people have been trying to address that particular issue through moderated forums and through threaded conversation lists and through wikis to permanentize information. Permanentize a word? I'll go with it. Okay. This makes for a whole lot of work for the moderators and a whole lot of judgment calls that slow down the process. Moderation in and of itself can be a tasking issue. Absolutely. Especially if you work with really large groups, then you run into a problem of manpower that just isn't there. Another difference between community building and consensus building is the contract for interaction. When you're community building, you're trying to build a contract for interaction. When you're trying to build consensus, if you don't already have one, you're going to spend a whole lot of your time building one and not actually working on the building of consensus. 
contract for interaction starts with basic politeness, determines who can talk when, identifies how opinions can be rolled up into a consensus. Are we voting by show of hands? Are we doing divided assembly? Parliamentary procedure is an excellent example of a contract for interaction that has built up out of need because you need a contract for interaction if you're going to come to consensus with a group of any significant size. Another thing that the contract for interaction does is it prevents topic drift. So why can't we just set up a social contract to you and use that with blogs and wikis for or with the addition of polling tools? Well, that's been tried in a lot of cases, and it tends to fall down for reasons of cognitive dissonance. Let's face it, most of us want to be right. We've worked hard to come to the conclusions that we have, and we're fairly confident in them, and it behooves us to believe that we are right, so much so that we tend to ignore evidence that suggests that we're wrong. This is how cognitive dissonance works. Even worse, because of cognitive dissonance, again, we tend to ignore the fact that we're doing this. So a whole lot of people spend a lot of their time online trying to prove themselves right as opposed to trying to find the correct answer. And they use a whole bunch of very damaging arguing behaviors in order to attempt to accomplish this. One of the worst of these is evasive arguing tactics. How this basically works is that you're arguing a concept and the other person maybe isn't so strong on it as you are. So they attempt to bring in more information, but what they're actually doing is they're changing the topic. You're no longer discussing the information you were discussing, you're now discussing this new information. And you work on that for a little, and then they bring in more information, and you've changed topic again. And as the conversation degrades each piece of information, they keep shifting the topic to avoid being pinned down under that piece of information and having to admit that they're wrong. Now, sometimes they'll even do this circularly. After they've introduced five or six pieces of information, they'll shift back to the first one because maybe they've come up with a new way of presenting it or thinking about it that they don't think the other person can really work on. And you can spend a very long time shifting between topic and topic and topic and topic, trying to pin the guy down on a single concept to admit that maybe this one just plain doesn't apply. And people will even do this with as few as two or three this can completely prevent anybody from actually coming to a conclusion on anything. And another really bad thing that people do is if they find one topic that their opposition is not particularly strong on, they'll hold on to it. This is a redoubt for them. This is something that they know they can win this piece of information. And yes, you have incontrovertible evidence and unquestionable authority, but what about those shoelaces? You still haven't been able to explain those shoelaces. And this, again, effectively prevents people from coming to a solid conclusion on things. Okay. This is made possible through the linear manner of arguing that occurs on forums. Basically, just the fact that you have one post coming after another coming after another allows this to happen. So you have to create a form of interaction that is not linear in order to prevent this. Okay. Wikis are a good example of this, but wikis require a great deal of manpower in order to maintain, and the content that's in a wiki has no metadata to it. You can't identify, okay, this is an argument for, this is an argument against, though arguments for are stronger than those against, and more people are agreeing with this one than that one. There's no metadata. It's all just words. Okay. So neither one of those particular forms by itself or even in combination is adequate. Another problem that you get on both wikis and on forums is immortal cleverness. People see something out there and they can think of something clever to say and they just can't help themselves. So they toss it out there and everybody laughs and then they go off on the tangent of whatever this clever concept was and they completely forget what the other thing was and maybe two or three days later people realize, oh, we're not talking about the original concept that we were talking about, so let's maybe go back to that and you've lost two days. And this happens over and over and over again. Not just thread drift, but thread hijacking. Yes, absolutely. And it's something that we just can't resist and we can't resist reacting to because it was funny. Yeah, I've done it. Another problem is objectivity. Unless you have a objective way of allowing people to state what their opinion is and being able to add those opinions up and identify what the most important points were, 
then you run into a situation where you have some moderator who's trying to decide which posts are worthy of putting out there and which ones aren't, and the conversation follows what the moderator's opinion on things are as opposed to what the group's opinion is. And then you have the problem of squeaky wheels. This person has the strongest opinion. They put 15,000 posts out there a day. They say the most. Maybe most people don't necessarily agree with him, but he's responded to every single thing everybody says. And so the way our minds work is he's presented the most evidence, therefore he's the one that an uneducated arguer is most likely to agree with. Rightness through quantity rather than quality. That's okay. ex- that's it exactly. I've seen that before too. I spend way too much time on forums, don't I? And then another one is raw manpower and maintenance. I think that Slashdot has a really good deal going right now where the conversation forums underneath the blog maintain themselves, but they don't have a way of creating automated consensus out of it, and they don't have a way of permanentizing the information short of saving off all 5,000 messages into an archive. Okay. It takes a lot of manpower to pick out the appropriate pieces of information, and as the groups that you're attempting to bring to consensus increase in size, the amount of manpower increases in a more than linear fashion. So one of the characteristics of the design that I've made is that it requires no meaningful manpower in any way, shape, or form short of the participation of the actual people that are trying to come to consensus. Okay, so you're, I know you, you've told me in the past that you have a design for a tool that meets all of these requirements. Where logically does this all start? Well, the primary conversation to try and come to consensus exists in a standard threaded moderated forum self-moderated form. But no weight is actually placed on what goes on there because of the reasons I've already explained. It exists largely for brainstorming and conversational interaction, but eventually someone will identify a point of contention, and that's where all the fun starts. This point of contention is moved into what I think of as the core of the consensus engine, which is the conjecture manager. The point of contention is embodied in a conjecture, which is a simple statement. For instance, it should be illegal to own poodles in city limits. Each participant has the opportunity to make one statement for or against the conjecture, and they can change that statement whenever they like. All participants also have the opportunity to vote on the most succinct and eloquent statement of their opinion that's currently out there. They can make a succinct and eloquent statement and vote for their own, or they can vote for someone else's. As a result, the most succinct and eloquent statements can then be bubbled up to the top as the most popular. You can also add up the number of people who voted for and the number of people who voted against to come up with the current consensus of the group. Everyone who registers to participate in a conjecture starts off with a vote for unproven, which basically means that for them, not enough information has been presented either way for them to make a decision. In addition to the for and against side of things, people can also make a statement for unprovable. There are a whole bunch of things out there that just really can't be proven. And if the unprovable votes exceed the for and against votes, then the consensus is that we need to try and come to consensus on something else because there's no way either side's going to be able to get an edge on this. The information just isn't out there. So based on this, wouldn't a potential problem be that there are too many statements, too many questions out there that are too complicated for a single statement? I mean, one I could throw out there is, there is a God. Absolutely. In order to handle that particular problem, I've introduced the concept of sub-conjectures. Basically, you're going to identify a point of contention within the conjecture. For instance, what do you mean by poodle? And then that becomes a sub-conjecture under that conjecture. Each sub-conjecture has its own collection of statements, and its consensus values are added up and displayed under that conjecture so that people can use the consensus on the sub-conjecture in order to contribute to their opinion on the primary conjecture. People can also vote on which sub-conjectures are the most important as far as they're concerned to the actual conjecture. This prevents obscuring tactics like where people will try and post 300 sub-conjectures on the history of cats in the Aztec Empire because these would be marked as irrelevant by most of the participants and just fall off the bottom where no one would, would ever see them. Even more useful, and I think this is one of the critical features of this whole design, these sub-conjectures can be reused. They're modular. Once you've established something like uh, Kerrigan and Ritchie Brace's degrade readability, then you can reuse that conjecture anytime the issue comes up. I believe that a database of these type of reusable modular sub-conjectures, coupled with a complete description of the tree of truths which were traversed in order to come to that conclusion, would be a tremendous asset to any body of people in the entire world. 
Okay, so then how do these conjectures actually add up? Subconjectures can't be added up mathematically because there's often a case where a thousand tiny excuses just don't add up to one solid fact. And because of this, it's necessary to give participants as much information to go on as possible to help them understand how strong the consensus is on any specific conjecture and how that conjecture relates to the parent conjecture. In order to better differentiate the weight of ruling on a conjecture, there's two very specific mechanisms. The four category, for instance, is divided into fact and truth. For a difference between those, you might want to listen to the interlude on Intice 3, but the short version is that fact has the strength of reproducible evidence, whereas truth only has the strength of popular opinion. Similarly, the against side is divided into the inverse of these two, which is disproven and unsupported. These are called conclusion pairs. For the unknown state, the conclusion pairs are unknown and unknowable, as discussed previously. These two are a little different, though, because unknown has no weight at all. Basically, it just means that we don't have enough information yet, or people haven't even presented enough information yet. And unknowable only has the weight of true or unsupported. I actually tried to come up with a concept that would have an unknowable equivalent to factual, but the only cases where I could come up where we can definitely factually state that something is distinctly unknowable were very obscure mathematical proofs. So if anyone has an argument in that direction, I'd really like to hear it. But in the meantime, we'll just leave that one off for a possible modification in the future. Now, for the purpose of consensus determination, each of the consensus pairs, true and fact, disproven, unsupported, unknown and unknowable, is added together to make three separate sums. As long as unknown has the greatest number of votes, no consensus can be reached. If the for or against sides have more votes than either of the other two, then a lesser consensus is reached. If either of those two have more votes than both of the others combined, then a greater consensus is reached. Okay. And when that consensus is reached, if, for instance, the consensus is four, then if factual has more votes than true, then that becomes a factual consensus as opposed to a true consensus. On the unknown side, you can actually come to a lesser consensus if the unknown and unknowable pair have a count greater than for or against, and unknowable has more points than unknown. Okay, now you've got the glazed over look in my eyes. Now you may have to actually listen to this all over again to have a clue of what I'm saying, but it really does make sense. And I'll try and post something on the forum so people can actually see it visually. That would be good. And of course, a percentage is going to be presented with this, so something can be a greater truth 51%, which helps people understand how true that concept is, and then they can take into account how relevant that is to apparent conjecture in order to try and figure out how to roll that into what people have to say about that conjecture specifically. So this really is a direct democracy consensus. Absolutely. So let's get to the information about the forum side. Is this just a standard threaded forum system? Well, obviously, I've spent a lot of time on forums, and they've actually been evolving quite a bit in the past few years. I really like what they've done on Slashdot, for instance, with their moderation system and their meta-moderation system. But what I'm envisioning here is a bit different. It's more complicated in some ways and significantly less complicated in others. Threading, obviously, is an absolute must. Being able to trace a thread of conversation back to its origins is extremely important. A second attribute that I intend to add to it is auto-moderation, basically people moderating their own conversations. Unlike Slashdot, where I'm going to have specific people as moderators, however, I'm actually going to allow everybody to vote once on any particular post. This should result in the most significant posts standing out against the others, and then we'll use a statistical comparison of how popular various posts are to others in order to figure out which ones are most relevant to what people are talking about. And of course, we'll probably toss in similar tags like informative, funny, and whatever. But one aspect I am going to change is that these points aren't normal points. They decay. They literally have a half-life. This means that if somebody posts something today and 100 people vote for it today, that two weeks from now, it'll only be worth 50 points. This two weeks amount is something that's going to have to be worked out and adjusted after an actual implementation, but we'll just start there and see how it goes. Okay. But this actually reflects how popularity works. Something that's horribly important to someone today may be not terribly important to them next week, and next month they may have completely forgotten about it. Similarly, posts 
will decay over time, and that will actually reflect how important that is to the current ongoing conversation. And another aspect, and this is controversial, but I'm very firmly in favor of it, is that when posts decay below one half a point, they'll drop off the edge. They will be either deleted or archived, but in either case, they will no longer be in consideration. This means that anything important that anybody says will have to be permanentized on the consensus engine conjecture manager side of things if it's going to be meaningful. This is largely because people are so used to forums, so comfortable with forums, that we suspect that initially people will spend all of their time trying to hash out things on the forum side and completely ignore the conjecture manager side of things. And the conjecture manager is the part that actually does the work. Okay. So now, what other features are you expecting this to have? Well, for one thing, there needs to be an efficient method of cataloging and finding conjectures. Otherwise, we'll wind up with a lot of duplicate conjectures because people want to say something and they don't know if anyone else has said it and they can't find where anybody else has said it, so they're just going to say it again. And that would duplicate work because if people have already come to a conclusion on a conjecture, it's much easier just to pull it up, apply your own opinion to that conjecture, basically become a member of it, than to start the whole process from scratch. Now, this might be done through keyword searches, folksonomies, or some other method. I've seen a lot of very interesting advanced categorization schemes. I'd actually like to try several of them out just to see how they work. This all sounds like a lot of fun with algorithms, and and I know that's a thing that you enjoy doing particularly, but um, what practical use would this have for people like, well me or anybody else out there. The original design was as an online collaboration tool, and it included things like action items, which were basically set aside as being not terribly practical. The next time the design came up, it was actually reworked as a self-functioning polling tool as a voter information system. Theoretically, a person with a huge constituency could set up a website where people can discuss the issues specifically involved with items for voting. And this is something that it would still be extremely useful for. Basically, it'd be a voter information system where all of the things that are going to be voted on can be created as conjectures, and people would be able to use it as a catalog and database of all of the evidence for and against, and they can log their opinions on it. Ah, the wonderful days where Governor Vance would have had an online system. That would have been nice. That would have been beautiful. The next time it came up, the design was scaled down a little to be used for clubs and small organizations and for groups like shareholders or boards of directors, and it was specifically designed to help the Omidyar group try and figure out what they wanted to do with Pierre Omidyar's money. But unfortunately, they decided that one of the things they did not want to do with their money was try and fund development of a consensus engine, so that went nowhere. Now, the most recent, and I think that this is probably going to be the one that's actually going to get it developed, the most recent application for it is the negotiation of functionality for software. And anybody who has ever designed an application knows that every piece of functionality needs to be identified, and you have to also identify which pieces of functionality are the most important, most significant, need to be developed first. And this tool would be absolutely optimal for that. And that's probably going to be the first implementation of it. There are other various applications that, while theoretically money-making, I can't discuss because that would be other people's money I'd be discussing. So we'll just set that one aside. That works. So how exactly would you go about distributing this? Well, the technology has a lot of applications, and many of them would have very important humanitarian value. And as such, I'd feel absolutely guilty if I were to attempt to develop it as a proprietary application. I really want it to be open source and freely available to everyone. That said, once that's done, there are several specific applications that it could be adapted to after the initial design and development was done that would, in fact, be money-making ventures. Okay. And that's probably where I'd go with it next. Okay. So how far along is the Consensus Engine project? Well, I've got a website. I've got a high-level design. I've got the database all hacked out. I've got some detailed design documentations. If it's all left up to me, I'll probably finish it sometime in... In 2016, 2017, something like that. So right about the time the monolith is coming down on... Yeah, basically, yeah, that's about right. Okay, sounds good. So basically that obviously links into, do you need some help on this? And if so, how can people get a hold of you to help out? Oh, yeah. 
I'm thinking I want to develop this based off of Zoop or some other similar tools, maybe PHP forums, that type of thing. And if anyone has experience with this type of thing and they think that this is a worthy project for their time, please get a hold of me. There should be plenty of contact information on the Intice website. I'll let you know where things are going on, give you a better update on the design status, and uh, maybe we'll actually start getting things done. We may actually be doing a podcast consensus engine 2.0. That'd be cool. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Rob. Appreciate the time and the information. Thank you, Jim. Have a good one. You too. In-groups and in-group bias are a fairly well-understood phenomena in sociology. Call them cliques, coteries, or social circles. An in-group refers to a group of people who we feel we are a member of, even if the obvious members of that group don't claim us as members. We generally look favorably on members of our in-groups and tend to think that they're more diverse than other people's in-groups. What sociology doesn't say much about is how these groups form in the first place. The mechanism for formation is complex and multi-staged, but it starts with a few simple observations about those around us. We look for similarities, whether it's by ethnicity, creed, choice of pastime, geographic locations, or political preferences. We'd start by choosing characteristics that we feel are important. This results in the primary groups from which in-groups are created. Once we have a primary group, we start to identify the scales of superiority that distinguish people within the groups. These scales are often derived from the primary group's original pretext. For instance, a primary group of political bias will pick scales involving political philosophy or social influence. A religiously based primary group will pick scales of theological knowledgeability or moral adherence. An athletically based primary group will choose scales of physical prowess or fanish enthusiasm. Through social interaction, the members of the primary group negotiate which of the scales to adopt as most important. A single primary group can adopt many different scales, but they always exist in a hierarchy of importance. Those who excel at the most important scales become the core of the in-group. Those who don't excel but agree with the scales become hangers-on and consider themselves part of the in-group. Those who don't agree with the scales become cliques, factions, cabals, and countercultures as they form competing in-group structures within the primary groups. Once an in-group is formed and established, the behavior repeats itself on a smaller scale. The in-group becomes the new primary group in the cycle of differentiation, identification, negotiation, and fragmentation occurs again within the new subgroup. This will continue again and again until each person has differentiated himself from every person he knows. For your typical person, this is repeated within multiple groups simultaneously. We'll enact this behavior with our church group, reading circle, friends at the club, people at work, and whoever else we associate with all simultaneously. These groups will each have a pull on us and attempt to require us to accept them and their scales over all other groups, even if we aren't allowed in the inner circles of those groups under threat of ostracization or worse. This results in a for us or against us mentality. Sometimes the primary scales of two groups conflict, either causing an identity crisis in the mutual members or resulting in doublethink, where we conveniently forget that those scales conflict. So ask yourself what your in-groups are, what scales they subscribe to, and how you rate on those scales. The answers might surprise you. The largest groups are always the easiest to identify. Our schools, countries, places of work, and religious groups make themselves quite obvious. Smaller than that are our states, departments, teams, clubs, sects, and this subdivision continues on into circles of friends. The scales that they subscribe to are similar in that they're easier to spot for larger groups. The largest groups often embody their scales in mottos and creeds. Truth, leadership, scholarship, brotherhood, Honesty and integrity are among the scales most often extolled by these. 
When you look around you and see the circles that surround and entangle you like a Venn diagram spun by a manic orb weaver, you will learn a lot about the fractal societies that we live in. Hi there, and welcome back to Intellectual Icebergs. This is Rob, and we are not going to do a couples cast. What we're going to do is I'm going to be interviewing Tiffany for this segment on the topic of building online communities. Hello. So let's just jump straight into this. Why are we talking about building online communities? Well, the reason is really because I'm fascinated with online human interaction. Anything from international collaboration on business projects, which I've been a part of, to MMORPG community building and then everything in between and on either side. If it's about online human interactions, I'm interested in it. And the way that I got started on this is that I quite literally learned HTML in chat rooms. After that, I did what a lot of us have done. I participated in numerous list groups for both business and personal projects or pleasure. So Corp goth, which is corporate goths, job lists, professional discussion groups, political list groups, that kind of thing. And then I've also built working and personal relationships over email and IM. Rob and I actually did a lot of our getting to know each other over email and IM, as a matter of fact, although we did have the luxury of meeting in person as well. And then over the last several years, I've joined several forums and quit several forums. I finally started one for us. Rob and I started it together with Intellectual Icebergs and City of Villains. As most of our listeners probably know, we do have a forum that serves double duty. And we've also started some wikis. So with the help of the City of Villains forum, we've built one of the best and top-rated supergroups on the Infinity server. And so I've been really curious about how this happens. You know, what did we do right? What kind of pitfalls have we encountered? So I did some research. And I can say that this all continues to be very rewarding as far as the forums go, but it is also a great deal of work. So what I'd like to do here is share what I've learned about building online communities, and specifically I'll be targeting forums. Cool. So now we understand what your interest in this is. Now can you tell us how this interests the listeners? Well, this should interest our users, at least some of our users, for a couple of different reasons. One of them, as many of you are already aware, online communities have become extremely pervasive. So even for non-tech people, we're now all starting to encounter and perhaps even participate in, even the non-techs are participating in list groups, forums, social networking websites, anything from MySpace and Adult Friend Finders, which is a romantic friend finding site, to say dog fanciers and job list groups, and online games to packs with a strong political presence. Online communities are becoming a part of our everyday lives, even the non-tech among us. And some of the behaviors that we're seeing in online communities are surprising, at least at first. And although online communities will always have an unpredictable element, we can identify and explain some of the behavioral patterns. And this is something that's of interest to those of us who participate in forums actively, but particularly to those of us who own forums who are thinking about starting a forum, starting to build an online community. So a lot of this, the what's in it for me for our listeners, is demystifying some of the social behavior that we're seeing. So for anyone who wishes to build an online community for whatever reason, this segment should be of interest. All right. So, okay, we've got the why now. Let's work on the how. Let's. Where do we start? I mean, okay, so I want to build an online community. I've got a great idea for something. I went and purchased a killer domain name. What are the nuts and bolts? What are the two by fours? What do I need? The very first rule, and you stated it. You said, I have a very good idea. That is the very first rule of having an online community. You absolutely must have a purpose. This is what you're going to use to interest and to attract, and at least to a degree, retain your audience. So whether you're organizing support for a political purpose, developing software, recruiting volunteers for some purpose, collaborating on a proposal or a project, or providing a place for people to meet and engage in social networking, collecting and disseminating all of the latest and greatest information about a subject, whatever it is, you have to have a solid, defined reason for existing. 
so I can't just create a blog about earwax and expect people to show up. Well, you can if there are a lot of other people out there who want to do the same things with earwax that you do, ah. i.e. the Library of Earwax, all the interesting earwax acts, you know. The Earwax Sculpture Museum. Exactly. If you want to build that, you can probably find other people on the internet who are willing to help you build. Now, the audience might be small, but it is a purpose, so you can do that. If you have no purpose, people will probably not stick around, and those who do stick around may very well impose their own agenda, and it may not correspond very well with yours. The next thing that you need to do, and this gets to your earwax comment, is find out who your audience is, who will comprise your community. Now, in some cases, the community may already exist, and you're simply seeking an easier means of collaboration, or you may want to increase the size and variety of the existing community, so you go to the internet. Now, these communities can be easier to work with because leadership, rules of interaction, common history, all of that stuff may already be well established. If you have an existing community, though, you want to be sure to ask for their input regarding the benefits and the features of the online community that you wish to build before you do it. You've already got these people here. You may as well use them in this endeavor. Now, in many other cases, we're going to build communities from scratch. And in this case, you need to think very carefully about who your target audience is. And you want to be as specific as possible and be realistic. The point here is that even if you think your idea is fabulous, it is unlikely that all of the internet users in the world are going to rush to your site and start fascinating conversations. It's just not going to happen. Remember that you're competing with a lot of other activities and a lot of other websites for even a fraction of a single user's time, participation, and attention. So it's okay to be optimistic, but you really need to be realistic about who will really benefit from your community and then what sorts of benefits you expect them to reap. Because remember, you're trying to attract them, you're trying to retain them, and you're trying to get them to participate. So you need to be thinking in terms of who are they and what do they want? What's in it for them? So figuring out how to provide benefit is a big part of it. It's a huge part of it. It goes right along with purpose. And if you can't think of any benefit to your users, then you need to return to the first step and try again. Also, for all that you need to be specific, remember to plan for the long term and accept that the composition of your audience may very well change somewhat over time as your community matures. Okay, that sounds like a good first item on our checklist, but let's go back to the two-by-fours thing. What tools do I need? Okay, as far as tools, you need to figure out what form your community will take. And now, remember, I'm focusing on forums here, but there are other forms your community can take. Do you want a list group? Do you want a forum? Do you want a wiki? And then, once you decide which of those tools you want to use, you have to decide are you going to host it or outsource hosting and what impact does this decision have on supporting and training your users. And I know we're mostly technical here, but you will have to support and you will have to train if you're talking about your less technical users. There are a lot of people out there who simply do not know how to use a forum yet or don't know how to put files in a database. Then you also want to consider, after you've decided on a tool and how you're going to host it, or right around the same time, figure out, will it be open source or something you buy off the shelf, or do you want to develop it yourself? How much customization do you want your users to be able to do? And what features will you provide, and will your users be able to figure out very easily how to use them? One of the rules of thumb here is to keep it as simple as possible, given your needs and the average ability level of your users. This means, again, you need to know about the specifics of your users. Whistles and bells are going to appeal to some users, they're going to scare off others, so you need to try to figure out the balance that works for you and for your community. And remember that more features does not necessarily equate to more features that your users will both use and appreciate. With Entice and City Villains, we're fortunate to have fairly to extremely tech-savvy users, so we can get away with a slightly quirky bulletin board. We use PHPBB. All that said, that they'll tolerate the problems, we do hear about them. So another oh, yeah. thing to keep in mind is that if your software is quirky or bug-riddled or whatever, you're going to hear about it. But fortunately, you can always use the excuse, yeah, but it's free. Right, right. But if instead you're creating an online community of soccer moms, no offense to the soccer moms here, but let's face it, that is a less tech-savvy group, we would have had to simplify things considerably. We would yeah. not have been able to use PHPBB in the form that we're using it. So, again, keep your user in mind when designing your system. And in the links, I'm going to include a lot of links for this segment. But one in particular that you'll be interested in is a link to a page that has an excellent table that lists features and why you want them and 
depending on whether you need a synchronous, asynchronous, or content management tool. So rather than get into all of that here and bore you, I'm going to say, go to the forum, look at the links. Okay, so I've got a forum, I've got a website, I've got a wiki, I've got really cool tools, I've got some pretty pictures. Is that it? Will this spontaneously create a site for me? What else do I need? Well, from a tools perspective, you're probably ready. But now you need to promote yourself. And you can do this by increasing your visibility in popular search engines, spreading your site's name via word of mouth. This is something that Rob and I do. We attend conventions and meetings. You can also include a promotional blurb and link about your new community in your email signature. You can get other sites with audiences who have a common interest to link to you. This can be very powerful. Find other sites with communities, particularly active communities, and you scratch their back and they scratch yours, and this is how things happen on the internet. You can also issue electronic press releases that can be distributed via sites and newsletters that distribute to your target audience. You can promote your site at trade shows, and again, as Rob and I do, conventions and the like. If you have marketing dollars and staff, you can use any of the conventional methods of marketing to raise awareness of your existence, but do us all a favor and don't be an ass. Spam sucks. And another thing to keep in mind that as a general rule, membership is going to grow slowly as long as your membership is small. And the sum total of your potential audience defines the relative terms small and large here. But the more members you have, the more attractive your community will be to other members, especially if your membership is also obviously active. So it might not hurt to seed your membership initially to jumpstart your numbers. That was one of the things that we found on the Entice thing in order to get it going. We pretty much had to respond to everything, and we became half of everybody out there. Even though there were maybe 20 people out there posting, we responded to pretty much everything. And actually, we still do that. And we still do that. We are both facilitating our community. And I'll talk more about facilitation in, in a couple of minutes. By now, you should also have, or at least be ready to, define and document guidelines for your community. And this will again be audience dependent, and you should keep it as concise, simple, and clear as possible. Now, some communities will require more details than others, but remember that you may very well need to enforce these guidelines and that you want to be able to do so easily and consistently. Then post these guidelines prominently so that no user will be able to say they weren't aware of the existence of such rules. This is something that we did immediately with City of Villains. As soon as we created the forum, we went out and started asking people, okay, you know, what makes a good leader? What should we call ourselves within the ranks? All of that. And we started setting guidelines. And we've kept it pretty simple. But in some cases, we have had to lean back on those guidelines with new members. So it's been very beneficial. Now, I've personally seen a lot of variation in the level of guidelines that a community requires. If the membership has a high level of churn, it may be a good idea to remind users of the rules from time to time. Rocky Mountain Internet Users Group, which is a job list and a discussion list that I participate in, they do this pretty frequently with their job posting rules from their FAQ, and that's because they have literally tens to hundreds of members joining and then theoretically dropping as well every month. With Entice, we have kept the guidelines really sparse, as anyone who's been to our forum has noticed. But again, with City Villains, we've had to get pretty specific. But again, when you're talking about guidelines, if you already have some community, remember to grow the guidelines with the community because that gives them a sense of ownership, which leads to better adherence, self-monitoring, and peer-to-peer -peer correction, which is a great thing. Most importantly, though, you are going to need people to attract, support, and nurture your community and your infrastructure. You need to attract and recruit or identify individuals to help you with leadership, which I'm kind of vacillating between calling it leadership and facilitation. I prefer facilitation here. But you're going to need facilitation, technical, and administrative functions. So if you have a budget, you can hire people to help. If you're non-profit, non-commercial, or otherwise non-funded, you may have to fulfill all of these roles yourself and then promote from the ranks as your community gets off the ground. This is something that we haven't done with Entice, but we definitely did with City of Villains. As we identify people who want to take on leadership roles, we have them fill those roles. We formalize it. But at the very, very least, you need someone to handle the technical details from bulletin board design and development to the technical details of membership, such as email confirmation, how do we protect ourselves from bots. They're also going to manage your security and the membership list and prune trolls and bots and other malicious types, and they'll get you back up and running if your software or the server crashes. And they may back up your content if desired or necessary. You also need someone to act as a catalyst with users, welcoming them, showing them the ropes publicly and privately, encouraging them to post, 
seeding discussions, carefully diffusing any conflicts that arise, etc. This is generally a people person, or at least should be, and may very well not be someone with a great deal of technical expertise. And I can't stress enough the importance of this role. You can have all of the other elements, and without someone to nurture your community, you will have a very difficult time developing a community that will flourish and help you attain your goals. Okay, then. That sounds like a lot of good steps to take that can lead you in the right direction. Now, I know that there are a number of our listeners who have some experience in building real-life face-to-face communities. What kind of differences do you run into between that and online communities? And specifically because we're working with the geeks here, are there any particular advantages that geeks in general would benefit from from online communities? Both face-to-face and online community building are actually very similar in that in both cases, you have to bear in mind what's in it for your audience slash users slash community. You have to figure out what will engage and motivate these people. And of course, you have to remember that they're individuals. Now, that can be easier to do in person where we have so many other social cues such as voices and tones and accents and looks and mannerisms and gestures. We have all of that to base our opinion, our feeling, our gut instinct on when we're building a community. Now, online, if we assume that video and audio are lacking, which they might not be, but if we assume that they are, The cues are far fewer, and many people are still learning how to convey a desired tone via the written word, and with varying degrees of success. Emoticons and slang and shared experiences are all going to help facilitate a sense of community, but they never approach the richness of cues that we get when we add voices, video, and finally, the live in-person communication. So the ruling forces are the same, but the cues are much more limited and often less practiced. And I actually think of this as social networking in the dark or in very dim light at best. It's social networking at midnight. That's a pretty convenient way of thinking about it. One of the things that I found to be true either in real life or online is that you have to treat individuals as individuals and that individuals respond better and feel a greater sense of community and are also more likely to actively engage when they feel cared for as individuals. And this is one of the reasons why in the Entice Forum, Rob and I still both make an effort to respond to every post. Often both of us are responding to the same post, and yes, often we also have opinions about the posts, but really a lot of it comes down to we want to post to every single individual and let them know, hey, we saw your post and we give a damn. We really do. And this is true. If someone posts something out there, I want to respond to it and let them know what I think about what they have to say. And if you turn this around and think about it, I'm sure that all of you have posted to a forum and then never got any sort of reaction at all. That was the end of the thread. And it really sucks feeling like you are the end of the thread. I am a conversation killer. (laughs) So nobody in our forum can be the end of the thread. He's Conan the Barbiturate. What a downer. We also respond to every email we receive about the podcast. That's part of building this community. And we take user suggestions very carefully into consideration. We often implement them. Then again, our listeners have the very best ideas. In City of Villains, I often take notes in-game so that I can recall which avatars all belong to a specific player, and so that I remember what promises I've made to users. So much of this information I end up logging in one forum or another in our forum. But I'm also paying attention to what people tell me, and I do get to know the people that are the players. This is actually easy for me because I enjoy getting to know people, and our players have responded very favorably and engage in some extremely animated conversations and discussions during our weekly villain group meetings and while gaming. Because we've made this personal to the point that it's grown above and beyond the simple purpose of playing some villain in some role-playing game. Our players, and I am not exaggerating here, are frequently telling us, this is the best gaming group I've ever been in. I love you, man. I'm, I'm not kidding. We've actually built a community of people who enjoy not just the gaming, but the gaming experience that we share together as a group. And we've had a lot of fun doing it. Or more to the point, I should say, having a lot of fun doing it had a lot to do with it. And it's huge. It means that we're succeeding. And while our prestige rating is high, it's only one measurement of success. And I really measure it by the happiness of our players and our community. And there we have been just immensely successful. And this is because we treat people like people. Now, another similarity to in real life situations is that when conflicts arise, 
the way you handle them will largely determine how the community will grow and whether or not conflicts can be resolved or whether they'll grow completely out of proportion. And one thing that I've found with approaching conflicts in online communities is that I need to approach it similarly to the way I approach employee conflicts. When a problem arises among your employees, you don't take the first story you hear and then just go fire someone over it. Or at least, you shouldn't do that. Instead, you try to get to all of the sides of the story, you try to get to the root of the problem, and you work through the issue in a professional manner. You don't want to lose good people. And that's true of employees, but it's also true of your community members. So you need to try to resolve the issue to the content, if not the satisfaction, of everyone involved. And you also need to, in my opinion, handle it as openly as possible and try not to drag in uninvolved parties. That may sound like the two don't go together, but when there is an issue, you need to handle it openly, but the details among the parties need to stay private. And you'll learn and you'll grow from the experience, and perhaps as a result of the conflict you'll change your policies, and that's okay too. Now, something else the facilitator of your community needs to be able to do is recognize other leaders. And the interesting thing about other people in communities who will take a leadership role is that they'll either do so publicly or they'll want to be stealth leaders, in which case they will perform a lot of the work, but they don't want to be openly recognized for it. And the facilitator needs to be able to recognize both types and handle them the way they wish to be handled. So your public leaders want all kinds of recognition. Your stealth leaders may not. And once these leaders have been recognized, that facilitator needs to delegate responsibilities. Now, with any luck, your community is going to grow beyond the time and abilities of just one facilitator. So the facilitator needs to be looking for others who show an interest in taking on responsibilities, groom and coach them if necessary, and then delegate. And users who wish to take ownership and responsibility are absolutely gold to an online community. And so it's the facilitator's job to recognize and reward them and then immediately put them to work. This can be one of the most difficult things to do for us type A's who want to control it all. But honestly, the community can and should be allowed to grow. And this requires help, and it requires the ideas and creativity of additional leaders, facilitators, and owners. So don't stifle it. Share the work. With City of Villains, we've had the honor of gaming with some truly outstanding individuals. And I just continue to be amazed at their willingness to take on responsibilities. They all lead and manage in different ways, and they've taken on some of the roles that, quite honestly, I wasn't very good at, and I appreciate this immensely. And they've also done these jobs in creative ways that I would never have thought of. So they've really improved the community in ways I could not have done by myself, that Rob couldn't have, and that our other founder could not have. One final word on the facilitator is that carrots work far better than sticks to guide and modify behavior in an environment in which someone only has to click once to remove themselves permanently from a community. Oh, come on. Can't we do hangings? Just one. Just one hanging. The other thing is that as a community develops a history together, they'll develop a stronger sense of community. In jokes, pulling together to complete a difficult project, working through a very difficult time together, all of these things strengthen the relationships and ties between those who remain at the end. And online users will often refer to this history together. This kind of behavior should actually be encouraged, although I will offer the caveat that lurkers may find such references intimidating, making them feel more like outsiders and unwilling to engage. But on the whole, the value of shared experiences will outweigh the risk of scaring off new users or scaring them into perpetual silence. Well, as far as I can tell, this type of experience also strengthens the bond between the lurker and the community. Even though they don't participate in it, they still get it vicariously. This is true. And while we're talking about our lurkers, I would like to say that lurking is not a bad thing. A couple of things to realize here are that most of the people in a forum will never post. Those who do post may post a whole bunch at once and then go away. But for the most part, most of the people out there are lurkers. And the thing about lurking is that that is how you learn what the rules are within a group. You learn what kind of in-jokes they have. You learn if you could fit in with them. You learn so much about them. I actually have done a lot of lurking in my past. I lurked in chat rooms, and in one case, I didn't lurk enough and ended up making a very large mistake and offending all of the community and having to kill my account in the chat house because I was engaging in some situations that people took offense at. It was very real to them, and to me it was fiction. So lurking has some benefit. It does help a person figure out what the guidelines and the ground rules are. 
remember that although it can be frustrating for us as the owners of a community and as the facilitators of a community that so many people are lurking, they're not really doing any harm. They may in fact engage at some point when you hit on something that really interests them. And ultimately they can be very, very valuable to your community. So don't be dissing the lurkers. And finally, the community will be unpredictable. People will do things you do not expect. Conflicts you never anticipated, but also help and ideas that you never dreamed of. Some of it's helpful, some of it's detrimental. You just need to maintain your focus while letting the community grow and letting it become what it will, because the community will develop its own sense of unity and ownership. Remember that change is part of growth and that when you're building an online community, growth and change are far preferable to stagnation and a community that has no activity at all. To your other question, whether geeks have an advantage online, the answer is yes and no. Since many of the same social rules apply, anyone with good social skills will do a little bit better. But geeks have more history and experience communicating and writing, so they've been in this environment of far fewer social cues for longer, generally speaking. Geeks also have the obvious advantage of being tech savvy and therefore experiencing fewer technical barriers when they land in a new online community. So yes, some will have a bit of an edge, but others may not. Okay. So a lot of us have gone to various websites and they've got interesting information on there and they've got pretty artwork and they've got a professional forum up there and everything looks good, but nobody's talking. Why is that? How do these things come into existence? Or more to the point, why don't they blossom into something more functional? Well, the first thing to remember again is that most users will read, not post. So we all need to accept that this is a fact and not work ourselves into a frenzy if 1% of our audience is posting and then only occasionally. Remember how many other sites and activities are competing for each individual audience member's time, attention, and participation and just let it go. With some sites though, the problem is that catalysts are missing. Now, people and events can both be catalysts. The site may need a facilitator or a better facilitator, someone to encourage the users to post, someone to seed, someone to engage in all of the activities that get people involved, or it might need a few of the regulars to get the ball rolling. Having somebody who is well-known in your community or famous visit your site and get involved in a conversation will probably serve as a significant catalyst. And as far as events go, discussions that have a deadline and a goal and a plan will be more likely to engage users because it creates a sense of urgency, another catalyst. If you've just got some long rambling discussion about something that never goes anywhere, has no purpose, has no goal, it may continue, but chances are it's just going to fizzle out because people will not take their valuable time to get really excited and post about something that is going nowhere. By putting, for instance, an end on it, make it a poll, or say, hey, we've got an event coming up and we need to organize this, that's the kind of thing that will get people involved because they feel like they're getting involved with a purpose. With City of Heroes, some of the catalysts that we have had have been voting on the names of the player ranks and then on the name of the new sister hero group in City of Heroes. And we just planned and executed our first practice base raid. Woohoo! This has led members to get involved in discussing base design and defenses and raid costumes and raid strategies. We had activity levels that we haven't seen since the villain group was just two or three months old. I will caution, however, that using tools like polls indiscriminately will desensitize the community to the tool, and it will no longer serve as a useful catalyst. Now, I've seen this happen with bulletins in MySpace and personal questionnaires in list groups. And let's not forget the slash dot polls. These are the ones that have a bunch of personal questions, such as, what's your favorite food? What's the weirdest place you've ever had sex? And you're supposed to post all your information and read everyone else's, and about the fourth time you've seen the 56th variation on one of these, you learn to just ignore it and you no longer wish to participate. But the lack of catalysts is something that will probably be the death of a community, or at least the death of a new activity in a community. Okay. Sounds like a lot of good information. Actually, I know it's a lot of good information. I'd say I'm ready to go out and do it, except we've already done it. For those of you who haven't, though, I will remind you again that I'm going to put a lot of good links in the forum. Go check it out. Hey, psst, this is a catalyst. Hi there, welcome to the chatter. The show's over. If you're looking for more show, go somewhere else. 
This is Rob. And this is Tiffany. And welcome back, everyone who's with us. We had a bit of an unexpected hiatus there, but we're back rolling again. I wanted to mention to everyone that I'm really serious about doing this consensus engine thing. I've actually petitioned various nonprofit organizations to see if they might want to fund it, but so far, no interest. If anyone out there is actually interested in helping out with it, please give me a jingle. And also, related to this episode, I would like to remind everyone that there are links, or will very shortly be links, as soon as I put them out on our forum, for the online community building. So be sure to check that out if you are interested in that segment. I had a lot of information that I had to gloss over, a lot of links to tools and whatnot, so that information will be helpful to you if you're in the process of starting to build or to maintain or grow an online community. We had some interesting feedback from our relationship maintenance segment. The thing that we were hearing from people, and this was both online via email and also a couple of people in person, is along the lines of, hey, that was great, it was really helpful, now how do I get my significant other to listen to it? We hear that a lot. And we're not really sure because it's very difficult to ask someone to listen to something like that without sounding like you're saying, hey, we have a problem. Right. And you may not have a problem. You may just want to improve things. Or you may want to do some of the work now so that you don't have problems down the road. This is true. One of the big problems with relationships is that there's a whole lot of if it ain't broken, don't fix it kind of mentality. It's not a matter of fixing it. It's a matter of continual maintenance. So if anybody out there has any ideas on how to get your significant other to actually listen to something like that, then please send us a line. Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. And if you leave a recording on our Skype line, then we'd be happy to play a response on our show. Wanted to say hi to Ted. One of the reasons we took so long to put this sucker out is because a friend of ours put us up for a week in Hawaii. Awfully darn nice of him. So, hi, Ted. Hi, Ted. Thank you. And I also wanted to bring to people's attention, turn off your TV podcast. One of our listeners sent me information about that. And if anybody is seriously into skeptical thought about politics and the world in general, it is such an awesome guide for that. And I would like to shout out today to our villain and hero group. In case any of them are listening, this is Evil Genius. Geniuses for a Better Tomorrow on the villainous side, and on the heroic side, we have eccentric geniuses for a better tomorrow. I'd like to shout out to them and also to another villain group, the Illuminati, who is in our coalition. I'm probably speaking Greek to those of you who don't play this game, but bear with me. Illuminati has been kind enough to let us practice base raids with them, and we've learned a great deal, and we're having a great time with it. Oh, yeah. We had ourselves quite the educational experience a couple weeks ago. That probably sounds like ass-kicking, and that's because that's what it was. (laughs) However, they let us do it again, and we actually managed to hold our own in the base the second time around in our base. So I'd like to shout out to both Eggbabbit and Illuminati. Hi, guys. And I would also like to shout out to an artist, today. The artist is Prale, and they are an Indian rock band, Indian from India, and they made us really some excellent promos. Unfortunately, the one for Intellectual Icebergs we can't use because it's not a music cast, but I will be playing and using the one they made for our Icebergs on that show. I've also ordered their CD and waiting anxiously for that to show up so I can podcast some of their music. So, hey guys. And one more shout out from me, and that is to John Murphy of Industrial Radio. John has invited me to sometime in the future co-host one of his shows with him and I even get to pick music which is way cool so I'm pretty excited about that. We also wanted to say hi to Les Howard of the Signal Podcast. If any of you happen to be Firefly fans, the Signal Podcast is the place to go for all the inside scoop on Firefly, the movie, the series, everything. So continuing on with that pharmacological extinction thing that I've been pursuing this Tuesday, I plan on being at a moderation management meeting to talk to them about how pharmacological extinction works and where it's going and how it can help them. And if any of those guys happen to be listening, hi there. See you Tuesday. We did mail a couple of brains this month. Brains. The first two we sent to Shady Bastard and Mild Case of Death. And yes, those are two villains in our villain group. They're both in Texas. No, no, those are the real names. (laughs) And I would like to thank Shady because he is our high prestige earner in our villain group. Go Shady! Shady earns Mad Bank. He just went over 700000 and for one person to do that is absolutely phenomenal. So, go Shady! We also sent one to Les Howard. Again, that's he's the host of The Signal, the Firefly podcast, and he's out in Georgia. 
And we also sent another one to Finland, to Yunus, who also would like us to speak about Unicode. And unfortunately, I don't know a whole lot about Unicode, certainly not enough for a whole segment. So if anyone happens to be a Unicode expert out there, then let us know and and maybe we can have you on as a guest. And then a couple of other just miscellaneous announcements. First of all, I have one that was really exciting. I am one of the Real Hot 100 winners. Yay! Yay for 2006. So you can check out the realhot100.org. They've actually just put out a really nice sort of magazine-looking PDF that's way cool, and it has all of our pictures on the front and then the information about us inside. And there are some, as I said before, just phenomenal women doing some amazing things. So I consider myself very honored to be counted in their number. Oh, also, I'm unemployed. I've been unemployed for a week now. I'm looking for a job. Oh, yes, I'm using our podcast to try to solicit employment. You bet I am. So if anyone out there needs an instructional designer, tech course developer, or tech writer, or manager of an instructional designer training team, or, or hell, podcast developer, or a, a podcast developer, or online community developer, yeah, you name it, yeah, I'll do it for money. You bet. We also have our anniversary show coming up. That's right. As of next show, it'll be one year since we started putting these things out on the, oh, I don't know, NetWave. NetWave. So thank you to all of our listeners over this past year. Yes, thank you very much. We appreciate you guys listening to us and hope we can do you good in the future. And one final thing is that we still have brains. So Quite a lot of them. <laughs> tons of brains. Huge box of brains. So if you'd like a brain, send us a message. So this is Rob. And this is Tiffany. Until next time, have a good day. Intellectual Icebergs is produced by Robert and Tiffany Raplin. If you enjoy our show, please vote for us on Podcast Alley and Digital Podcast. The music for the intro and credits is Speaking in Electronic Tongues by Synthetic Movements. The music for the first segment is Wasted on Club Soda by the Dare Ya Blues Band. The music for the interlude is Through the Past by Jumatrix. The music for the second segment is Into the Sunset and Into Paradise by Robert Phoenix. The music for the chatter is Pocket Orchestra Energy by Synthetic Movements. The Brain Song is Brains by Aaron Geis and Sherry Arnett. The makers of Intellectual Icebergs would like to remind you that cats and catapults don't mix. Please visit us at www.intellectualicebergs.org. Intellectual Icebergs is released under a Creative Commons license and is an Ankh Infinity production. Yes,